whose uh, whose messages mean something to you in spoken word and in the in the written word? What authors uh, are you fascinated by and have respect for? Hold in high esteem. Think about them. Their names, maybe what comes to mind. And even as you identify them, let me ask you this: If there came a time when you disagreed with what one or more of these who you respect have to say when you decided not to comply with their suggestions, what would be the consequence? You read a book by somebody and uh, you just said, I don't agree. I, I, I differ from this person's point of view. I'm not going to go in that direction. What would be the consequence? Think about it and compare it to what the consequence of uh, uh, of not complying with the words of the Lord Jesus. Uh, think about the difference in severity of consequence to, to depart from the words of even a respected human and to depart from the words of the God-man. Uh, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Much more severe consequences you see if you, if you did the latter. So though we respect, I hope we do, people worthy of respect, let's not overdo it. Uh, I think my people of old and even today have erred in this direction. There was someone they really, really held in high esteem, Moses, uh, and, and they ought to have. I'm a, I mean, this is an unusual person, Moses. We all would agree. Think about his, just the nature of the way he was birthed and saved as an infant. It was quite an example of divine intervention on on his behalf. And and then God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Has that happened to you? I mean, this is extraordinary. It's not typical. It's atypical. And then not only did he do that, he commissioned Moses. These we prayed for tonight are being commissioned by the church to represent the Lord. And, and he, he commissioned, God commissioned Moses to be the pioneering leader and deliverer uh, of the Israelites who were then enslaved, they were going to be enslaved in Egypt for over four centuries. And then on top of it, God enabled Moses to have power to be the vehicle through which 10 plagues uh, befell the land. And not only that, God used Moses to part the Red Sea. Think about it. This is not commonplace. It's, a, it's an exceptional miracle that God entrusted to Moses. And then Moses went up on the mount called Sinai and there met as face to face with holy God as a human could possibly get without being consumed by the fire of his holiness. And, and Moses did not leave that encounter, as you know, empty handed. He came down from the mountain with the commandments of God. There were 10 of them, a reflection of his heart, of his values, of his ethics, which affect civilization down to this very, very day. And so you see, I'm making the case that it is not irrational for the Hebrews of old to have paid such respect to, to this one called Moses. He wrote the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We get to read them, but not to write them. Moses did. A person uh, with uh, understanding is held in high esteem by the Jewish people of that day and, and even today. But 
it seems as if my people held Moses a little too highly. It, it seems that they had maybe a little more regard for Moses than they ought to have had. And as a result, the writer of Hebrews, that's the name of the book we're studying, the writer of Hebrews wants to remind the Hebrews of one who is far better than even Moses. And this is what we will spend our time reflecting on this evening in Hebrews, which we're calling the letter of better. Uh, tonight, we'll talk about this. Jesus is better than Moses. And to do this, let me call your attention to chapter three of the book, verse one. Hebrews chapter three, verse one. This is what it says. Therefore, holy brethren, that's you, me, Christians. Not directly, it was written to other believers in the first century, but by extension, it applies to us. Holy brethren. Brethren is a family term. We're in a fa you're in a family now. If you're a Christian, you're in a new family. It's a family term. And the character of your new family, mine, the one we participate in, belong to now because of the Father. The character of the family is that it's holy. Holy breath. You have never been part of a family like that. I don't care how wonderful was your family of origin. It did not have this character. This is quite special. This is, this is your lot in life now. Uh, you, you've been saved for it. You, you're one of the holy brethren. Your family has a holy character. But wait, you say, are you kidding? I know of many Christians who don't seem to be living the kinds of lives they ought to live. Yeah, but don't miss the point here. Here, when we speak of the brethren being holy, we're not talking about a sinless perfection. We're talking about a separation. You're separate. You've been separate. If you're a Christian, think about this. You've been separated out from the crowd. Now, I know that leads to all kinds of questions. Why you and not somebody else? I don't know the answers to that. Uh, ask God when you get to see him. But I don't want to, us to miss the obvious point. You've been separated out from the crowd. You've been made to be part of a new organization. Well, it's a family. There's relationship in it. Relationship. We're brothers and sisters, and we pray our father, you see, he uses those terms, and it has a holy character. Set apart is what we've been called for. Set apart for the glory of God. How do you feel about yourself if you're a Christian? What messages have you received from significant others in the course of your life which have minimized your value? I can't do a thing about it, neither can you, except to replace those messages with this extraordinary message. God the Father, he is the perfect, sinlessly perfect one. He chose you. He selected you out. That's the way it is, you see. And he made you to be part of a family that has a holy, special character whose purpose and calling it is to bring glory to his name. And not only that, you know who else we are? It says right there in the next phrase. We're not making too much progress, are we? Are you comfortable? 
We'll be here for a while. But let me just tell you who else we are. Look what it says, partakers of a heavenly calling. That means we, Christians, participate. We're partakers. We participate together in a new and a shared condition. And it is heavenly. Partakers of a heavenly calling. What sense is it heavenly? Well, it is from there. And, and it will be eventually back to there. I'm telling you. We have to be reminded of these things. We can get so distracted, we can miss the point. You've got to know who you are so that you live up to it. Otherwise, you'll live too far down, you see. Be listening to the wrong voices, to the wrong message. This is who believers are. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, is reminding these believers, and by the way, they were Jewish believers, that's why it's called Hebrews, you see? They were Jewish, but he, the writer is reminding Hebrews, Jewish believers in Messiah Jesus, of who they are. And then having accomplished that, he uh, uttered two words, which we ought to take note of. Consider Jesus. This is who you are, said he. Do you get it? Holy brethren, partakers of heavenly God. This is who you are. Now, this is what you are to do. Consider Jesus. A good word for them in that day. They were under such persecution, suffering, hardships. But just as good an exhortation for us today. Consider Jesus. You see, when we're obligated to consider the rest of what's going on here on earth, it could be quite unsettling and discouraging. So the word is consider Jesus. Many voices, many distractions, many opportunities to lose our focus. Listen, if you've been separated out, set apart unto God, if you're part of a community known as the Holy Brethren, if you're a partaker of a heavenly calling, then you've got to discipline yourself. You have got to avoid distractions. You've got to stop listening to all kinds of other voices calling you away from the one who called you. Now, you, you have to consider Jesus. And when you do, you remind yourself of who he is. Here it is, says right here in the text, the apostle and high priest of our confession. An apostle is one who represents God. Jesus is the ultimate apostle. He has, as apostle, represented God, the unseen God to us. But he's also high priest, and has high, as high priest, he has represented us to God. You see, when you consider Jesus, this is what he did. He brought God close to us. He brought us to God. He's apostle and high priest. Not only that, when you consider Jesus, consider this, it's verse 2. He was faithful. He was faithful to him, to the Father, who appointed him, as Moses also was, in all his house. <gasps> you know what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's paying due respect to Moses because he knows the recipients, Jewish people, they would not listen too long to someone who denigrated the reputation of the great rabbi Moses. In Hebrew, we call him Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the greatest rabbi. And they wouldn't pay any attention. They wouldn't pay mind to someone. The writer of Hebrews, 
who cast dispersions on the reputations of the great rabbi. And so the writer doesn't. The rabbi says, uh, 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 Moses was faithful just as Yeshua, Jesus, was faithful. But wait just a second. We don't want to carry the similarity too far. You have this quality in common, Moses and Jesus. Uh, they both were faithful to do what God asked them to do. But hang on here. There's a major contrast between the two as well, and, and here it is, verse three. Uh, consider Jesus who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was a member of the household. But Jesus built the house. By the way, this text uh, implies a truth you ought to grab onto. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is God. I tell you what I mean. If, as it says, God built all things, and if, as it implies, uh, Jesus built God's house, then that means Jesus must be God. So for those who say he is not deity, he's just a man, nah, they're gonna have a hard time reconciling that with verses three and four. But look at, not only is Jesus better than Moses in this regard, the house versus the builder of the house, but also in another, look at this, verse five. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a what? As a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, Moses was this, but Christ, Moses was faithful as, in what role? As a servant, but Christ was faithful as what? A son. So there's another basis for the superiority of Jesus over Moses. Son versus servant. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, now get this, whose house we are, if, two letters in that word, right? If, whose house we are, if. And those, that two-letter word has caused more problems than you would believe. We're gonna see this as a theme running through Hebrews, and we're gonna have to tackle it right now. If implies a condition, whose house we are, if, that one word if has led many, many people to a very, very false conclusion. And the false conclusion that that one word, if, has led people to is that there is a possibility of the loss or forfeiture of your salvation. You see, you are God's house if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So that looks like the condition in order for your salvation to be a sure thing. You're part of God's house if you hold that, if. This is a condition you have to meet. That's what the word if means. If you hold fast your confidence and the boast of your hope firm until the end. You see, and if you don't do that, the implication is, if you don't meet the condition implied by the word if, the, the implication is you can lose your salvation. That's not true. Absolutely not true. So let's talk about this. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who he is addressing as believers. How do we know this? 
because he refers to them as holy brethren and as partakers of a heavenly calling. We covered that in verse one. That is not the way you refer to unsaved people. He is speaking to this group of people as if they are all believers. However, he has no reason to know for sure that they all are, because he doesn't know each individually. He's not the FBI, and he cannot read hearts and minds. He doesn't know what's really going on in the lives of each individual in this particular congregation. He's addressing them as if they're all believers, but he knows they probably aren't. This being the case, he wants to help them to distinguish between those who merely profess Christ and those who possess Christ on the inside. How does he do this? He offers a litmus test. And here is the litmus test. He's offering to the congregation, and maybe it was one like this. This is a parallel. There are many, many people here. I'm speaking to you as if you all know the Lord but probably that's not true, you see? So how do you know the difference? How can you be sure? You must judge yourself. And so he says, here's the test. If the good start you got off to by professing faith in Christ, if that's how you finish, then you have evidence that you are truly saved. But if you uttered a magical prayer if you got dunked in a tank, and then it gets a little sticky and a little hot, as it was for these people, and you bail out, as many do, you just found out you only gave intellectual assent to Jesus, but never your heart. You didn't lose something you never had, because you can't lose something you never had. You never had it. You simply prayed a prayer. Have you ever done this? And we mean well. Just pray these words after me. I'm not against that. You gotta go somewhere. But the real evidence of what, whether those words took is what's going on with the person not three minutes later, but three months later, three years later. Is that person still walking with the Lord? So the test is the staying power of the Holy Spirit in a person. So you know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's not saying you're saved by holding on. He is saying that holding on proves you are saved. Can you see the difference? We're not called to keep ourselves saved. We can't do that. We're not called to keep ourselves saved. If we are saved, we are kept by God until the very end. So you see what he's doing? That's the test given to a mixed group of people who go to church and think on that basis they're redeemed. That's not the test. Anyone could go to church. The real test is a transformed life. A transformed life. And so now what happens in the next few verses, I better calm down. In the next few verses, the writer uh, quotes Psalm 95. Look, verse seven. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, now here's Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, but wait. Fascinating little sidelight. David wrote Psalm 
King David wrote Psalm 95, but the writer of Hebrews attributes it to the Holy Spirit. See, just as the Holy Spirit says, then he quotes David's words. So you're getting a little glimpse into how we got the Bible. God the Holy Spirit so moved men, so inspired them that they wrote in accordance with the inspiration given by the very Spirit of God. All the Bible has a divine author, Almighty God, and he used humans to pen the words. He so superintended that it would be just what he wanted. He kept David's personality, but the Holy Spirit hovered above and in to make sure what was breathed out was God's words. So you get a little glimpse of it here. So the writer of Hebrews is attributing Psalm 95 uh, to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, today, if you hear his voice, verse eight, don't harden your hearts as when they, the Israelites, provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years. We just went through the book of Numbers, it almost took about 40 years, it seemed like, to go through. So you remember how the Israel did in the wilderness, not so good. Uh, it's verse nine, where your fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and I said, they always go astray in their heart and they didn't know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And a whole generation, Whole generation, didn't they? They died in the wilderness. They never made it into the place of rest. Verse 12, here's the application. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So now the writer of Hebrews is applying this to his listeners, his readers. And he says, learn from ancient Israel. He's saying because of their unbelief, many fell away from the living God, and the result was they failed to enter God's rest. Unbelief, he says, kept them out. Unbelief is the one thing, unbelief, that will keep a person from God's rest. Nothing else. Unbe Sin is not the problem. It's unbelief in the sin, sacrifice, and substitute, the Lord Jesus, that keeps one out of the place of rest. Now, folks, verse 12 is not to believers. I'll tell you why. It is possible for a believer to have a measure of unbelief in his or her heart. You and I, as believers, we suffer with this all the time. It's a matter of trust. We all struggle trusting God for a job, trusting God for a life partner, trusting God for health, trusting God for the well-being of our children. We struggle with it. We don't trust him. We ought to trust him more. So it is possible even for a believer to have a measure of unbelief about certain aspects of God's dealings with him. But it is not possible for a believer to have what is termed here an unbelieving heart an evil and unbelieving heart. That is not possible for a believer to have. An unbelieving heart that keeps you from God's rest. No, no. If you're redeemed, if you're a Christian, it's because you have a believing heart. 
So he's not speaking about anyone losing salvation. He's warning those who think they're saved because they have professed Christ. He's warning them, be sure, because Israel in the wilderness had some awareness of me as well. They saw my works for 40 years, but because of their unbelief, they didn't enter in. You can't get saved because you're a member of a church. When I was working in Jewish missions, we used to have an expression, just because you were born in a bakery doesn't make you a bagel. <laughs> just because you grew up in the church doesn't make you a Christian. So the writer of Hebrews wants people lovingly to be warned. Okay, now, uh, so now I'm gonna do something. And I just wanna prepare you. Um, and I really prayed about this. And I, I think I'm on good footing. You will let me know if that's not true. Because I'm gonna get really specific about a modern day application. Because we're not struggling with Moses and all that stuff now, right? There's other stuff going on. I'm gonna get real specific. I'm gonna name names. And I'm gonna get real controversial. But I don't wanna get hateful and mean-spirited. You need to correct me if I'm mean-spirited. I'm not so concerned about the content about what I'm about to say, but I want to do it with the right attitude because but for the grace of God, where would I be? Where would you be? Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> Joel Osteen recently appeared on CNN. He was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer about many things. And in the course of the interview, uh, he made the statement, uh, Joel did, that both Mitt Romney and President Obama are both Christians. Now, the reason why I think I'm on okay ground to do this is I'm only, I'm only talking about what's in the public do domain. We would have no right to cast dispersions, tell secrets, gossip about people. This is on CNN, right? Anyone can watch this. Okay, so that's what the statement Joel Osteen made. In fact, he said, this is a direct quote, I'm quoting, when I hear Mitt Romney say that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Christ raised from the dead, that he's his savior, that's good enough for me. That's what Joel Osteen said. Apparently, that isn't good enough for the writer of Hebrews. You see, because the writer of Hebrews is very deeply concerned about those who simply profess Christ, but show no evidence of a life lived consistently in conformity with the teachings of Christ. You see, you, you, you see, Governor Romney is a Mormon, we know this, right? So I'm not saying anything out of, out of line here. He's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. And, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I could easily make you aware. Uh, the Mormon notion of Jesus Christ is entirely different than that held by Orthodox Christians. Uh, the notion of Jesus Christ, which emanates from the Book of Mormon and other Mormon writings, is very different than the Jesus who emerges from the Bible. You just, I'm not trying to be critical or nasty, I'm just stating 
Don't be offended by facts, okay? This is just a fact. And so it's a little hard for me to see how, how, how Joel Osteen, merely on the basis of the profession of faith in Christ uttered by Mitt Romney, could square that with the incompatibility of the teachings of Christ uh, in the faith group, which Mitt Romney belongs to. I don't get it. See, the writer of Hebrews would say, hang in there. Israel had an awareness of the one true God as well, but they didn't enter in. They died off in the wilderness. Be warned, be warned. It's not just to name the name of Christ. It's not just to give intellectual assent. It's not just to have an awareness of his being. It's not just to declare your affiliation with him. How's your life? How's it going? What do you believe in? What are you adhering to? So, so, so. Now, in fairness to Joel uh, uh, Osteen, he does make the statement that Mormonism is really uh, not part of traditional Christianity, and here's a direct quote from Osteen. He said, Mormonism is a little different, but I still see them as brothers in Christ. Um, But the writer of Hebrews, in verse one, only refers to those who are yielded to the Christ of the Bible as holy brethren. Now, I need to say something, because I know I'm going to get emails. Am I saying a Christian shouldn't, if if Mitt Romney is the Republican nominee for the presidency, it looks like that's going to be the case, unless there's a surprise. Uh, You're going to say, are you saying that a Christian should not vote for a Mormon candidate? I didn't say that at all. So let's be clear. And I'll tell you why I didn't say that. You're about to vote. Not for the theologian or pastor in chief. You're going to vote for the commander in chief. This is not a theocracy, it's a democracy. Democracy is not the best form of government. It's the best we got in human terms, I suppose. The best form of government is when Jesus is on the throne, but he ain't yet. So therefore, we settle for democracy. So therefore, the one you vote for, use your sense, the one you vote for is the one who can manage the country best. <clears throat> Economically, militarily, morally, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not, don't, I'm not telling you who to vote. By the way, if we around here have to tell you who to vote for and who not to vote for, we have failed you miserably. Read the signals. <laughs> so then Osteen was asked about President Obama's faith, and uh, he said he has spent a lot of personal time with President Obama and has no doubt that he is a Christian. Now here's a direct quote from Osteen. I believe with all my heart that he's a Christian as he says he is. You see, but once again, the writer of Hebrews is requiring more than that one says he is a Christian. I'm not trying to criticize anybody. Don't misunderstand. Then my heart goes out to every character I just mentioned. I pray for them, not against. I pray for them that they would consider Jesus and know him in truth. But I'm I'm hard pressed to square one's profession of faith with true saving faith if one's uh, choices and uh, 
perspectives and values seem to be rather diametrically opposed to those of the Christ. You see, the, the, the Christ of the Bible is very much in favor of the sanctity of human life. He would never, never, never support abortion. The Jesus of the Bible doesn't need legislators to define marriage. <laughs> he gave it to us in the first book of the Bible. And for this cause, a man shall leave his parents and shall cleave to his not same gender partner, his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's holy matrimony. But the president is very much interested in uh, same gender marriage and all the, all the rest. I'm not here to bash anybody, I'm just trying to tell you. I'm a little hard pressed to attach too much to one's profession of faith in Christ without evidence of the transforming power of Christ in that person's uh, the president of Venezuela is Hugo Chavez. He was recently diagnosed with cancer. In a recent broadcast, he stated he has made a pact with Jesus and that he, Jesus, will therefore heal him. Here's a direct quote from Hugo Chavez. It's like a pact with Christ who didn't die, he rose again. He certainly will intervene to make this treatment. I am rigorously following a supreme success. Maybe Hugo Chavez has turned in truth to the Lord Jesus. I pray it be true. But is it just me who's looking for evidence of the change first before I accept all this? Do you know anything about Hugo Chavez? He's a maniac. He's an anti-America, anti-Israel, anti-biblical truth dictator who's driving his country into the ground. Has he found Christ? Has Christ found him? It's possible it could be. I pray that be the case, but I'm not jumping up and down because this guy made a pact with Jesus that guarantees his healing. Let me see what he has to say three weeks, three months, three years from now. Don't you see? I'm just... I'm, I'm just doing what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's just saying, he's addressing the big crowd because you can get lost in the, there's wheat and tares in the crowd. One of the biggest errors the church is making today is persuading people they're Christians when they ain't because they prayed some prayer, got dunked in a tank, singing a choir. Where's the change? Someone who's persistently struggling with sin may need to examine themselves. Where's the power of the sanctifier in that one's life. How do you get inhabited by the creator of the world and it not be noticeable? That's all the writer of Hebrews is saying. Where's the evidence? He's saying, he's not being hateful. He's saying, I warn you, I don't want you dying off and missing out on the rest you think you're going to experience just like Israel did because you uttered a prayer. I want you to know, do you see evidence of a change? in your life, is there any change in your life? Oprah Winfrey, during a uh, broadcast, uh, she has a new series, it's called Life Class, Life Class, and during a broadcast, just recently, she professed on the show, 
twice to being a Christian. Um, as a result, some are, are taking her profession, her confession, to be very, very clear and incontrovertible evidence that she, in fact, is, is a Christian. But the writer of Hebrews cautions against merely relying on one's profession of faith in Christ. The substantiating evidence for the genuineness of one's profession is a life lived increasingly in conformity with the teachings of Christ. But Oprah, who is so gifted, such an endearing person, uh, she doesn't live in accordance with the teachings of Christ at all. She's very much in favor of a woman's right to choose to murder her baby. She's very much in favor of retranslating biblical marriage. She's very much in favor of all kinds of things that don't emanate from the Christ she says she believes in. In fact, in her introduction on TV to the life class, Oprah told her packed audience, why is it always packed? Joel Osteen just spoke to 40,000 people at a stadium. What's the deal? Because they like the message. So do I, man. Don't tell me anything negative. Don't be a downer. <laughs> but the writer of Hebrews says, I love you too much to pretty it up. Your eternity is involved. You're not going to make it with sin unless you have the Savior. The writer of Hebrews cares. Well, anyway, uh, she said, Oprah shared to a packed audience that the theme of the life class would be what she called spiritual solutions, and they happened to be taught by a very prominent, well-known New Age figure, Deepak Chopra. Do you know him? Yeah, he's going to be the host of the deal. Oprah explained, here's a direct quote, I'm not talking about religion. I'm a Christian. That is my faith. I'm not asking you to be a Christian. Why not? Okay. I'm not asking you to be a Christian. If you want to be one, I can show you how. But it is not required. Yes, it is. I have respect for all faiths. All faiths. But what I'm talking about is not faith or religion. I'm talking about spirituality. And then she added, my definition of spirituality is living your life with an open heart, through love, allowing yourself to align with the values of tolerance, acceptance, of harmony, of cooperation, and reverence for life. Come on! Not a one of us can produce a lick of that apart from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then she talks about all this stuff. She says, there is a... F can you please... Ex am I miss... I'm a person of reasonable intelligence. Please decipher these words. She said, there is a force, energy, consciousness, divine thread, I believe, that connects spiritually to all of us to something greater than ourselves. Why don't you just say, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the lie. Come on. 
This, which is called the Life Class on Spiritual Solutions, also features a series of other New Age teachers, perhaps you're familiar, in addition to Chopra, Elizabeth Lesser, Eckhard Tolle, and others. You know, Wikipedia some of these people and get ready to barf. Despite Oprah Winfrey's public confession of faith in Christ, she actually professes a form of what is known as pantheism, which is the teaching that God is everything and everyone. He is an abstract force. He is not a personal being. The writer of Hebrews is saying, talk is cheap. Words, a prayer written out, Pray after me. Here's your mantra. And then that person is considered a part of the family made up of holy brethren, a partaker of a heavenly calling, without any evidence of regeneration. Do you know why there are so many fights in churches? Thank God we don't have too much of that around here. But, but, but with so many churches are dividing Christians fighting with one another? Who said it's Christians fighting with one another? Who said? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You've been persuaded you're a Christian because you've said some words, you sing in the choir, you put some money in the basket, you got dunked in a tank. Israel was experienced 40 years of evidences of Almighty God. She knew all kinds of words and died failing to enter into God's rest. The only true evidence that you have Christ and he has you is that you're a new creature. What's the evidence? Listen, 35 years ago, I was a drunken, drugged, suicidal weirdo. I haven't had anything to drink in 35, alcohol, 35 years. I don't, I'm not, not, it's not, I couldn't do that. The very thing I didn't want to do, I did. What I wanted to do, I couldn't do. Who can set me free? Christ Jesus. I'm just saying it's an evidence. If ever I'm tempted to doubt, am I saved, am I saved? Whoa, I'm a whole lot different. I'm in a church. I'm a Jew with you. <laughs> what is that all about? How does that happen? Why am I not in the synagogue? Why am I not singing Hebrew songs? What's up? <laughs> because I've been put into a new family. I love it. There's nothing better than the church. I don't want to belong to anything else. Where's the evidence? There's not virtue inherent in me. Don't you? Uh, do you see evidences? Do you see anything? Do you know what? I love to read the Bible, but not always. Why would you want to read the Bible? That's a change. That's a change. Don't you see? Do you see any evidences? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. No, no, no. I know you're saying you are. Do you have anything to substantiate it? That's what he's saying. It's really, really, it's really, really important. No, look, I'm not judging anyone with respect to their salvation. I'm not judging President Obama. I'm not judging Governor Romney. I'm not judging Oprah Winfrey. I'm not judging. Hugo Chavez, I, I, I'm just pointing out what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's warning those who merely name the name of Jesus to judge themselves with respect to the matter of salvation. Why?
if ignoring the leadership and words of Moses brought such stiff consequences, can you imagine how much more severe are the consequence, consequences for avoiding the words and lordship of Jesus? That's the point of Hebrews chapter 3. Jesus is better than Moses. If rejecting the leadership of Moses brought such consequences, he only brought the law. What about rejecting the words of Jesus? He brought grace. He brought grace. I'm not angry with one of these people. I am these people, but for God's grace. That's why if I'm mean-spirited, you gotta tell me, you gotta send me an email, you gotta put me in my place. If I just stirred some things up because I mentioned some names, don't waste your emails. I pray for every one of those people I mentioned, every one only that they would be surely in the grip of the Lord Jesus, not superficially. Only the evidence would be decisions, policies, philosophies, thinking would be in compliance with his. How could it be that the Ruach HaKodesh, the one who superintended the authorship of scripture, that very one who inhabits the life of a truly born again person. How could it be that the spirit, the holy one, would not make a profound difference? How could it be? How could it be? How could it be? How could it be that he would be in you and not give you a distaste for those things which used to be quite tasteful yet sinful? How could it be? that if he, almighty God, has implanted his spirit in you, you don't also with him have the mind of Christ. How could you not be mindful of life, <laughs> of distinction amongst gender roles, about proper stewardship of finances? How could you drive a country into irreversible, in my opinion, indebtedness to the brink of bankruptcy? and ask for more debt. This is not the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not, this is not, this is not. How could you turn your back on Israel? and offered to negotiate with the Taliban, shooting at my son, well, turn your back on Israel, and tell me you have the mind of Christ. <clears throat> so I pray for each of these people, as should you. Someone must have prayed for us. How did we come to be holy brethren and partakers of a holy calling? Not virtue, not anything good, a good and gracious Savior laid hold of us. And I'm praying that he would lay hold of these who sadly, tragically, I think are fooling themselves into thinking, I'm right with God. You can't be unless Jesus makes you whole. 
unless he cleanses you. Lord Jesus, therefore we pray, because you have such a desire for none to perish, but for all to be saved. We pray that these aforementioned people with such wonderful characteristics would not rest on it, but would rest on the merits of Christ Jesus. How does that happen but supernaturally? So that's what we're praying. Oh God, we need, we yearn for, we beseech you for a divine outpouring of your spirit upon our land. We're in trouble. We've made a mess of things. We have none to blame but ourselves. Merciful God, give us a break. Give us another chance. Oh God, give us a divine visitation that melts hearts, strips us of dependence on our own strengths and imagined virtue, empties us of self, persuades us we're lost sinners, and causes us to beg you for mercy, to come once again to the altar of salvation with tears. Oh God, is that called revival? Call it what it is. We need you. Oh God, have mercy on our land. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.